0: Turning with me now to the Gospel of Mark, where today we'll be reading and studying together beginning in chapter 15, verse 42, and going through chapter 16, verse 8. This is the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the Gospel of Mark. Before I read God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word, Let's go to him in prayer, asking that his blessing might be added to it. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, your word is life. It is a light that shines into darkness, and there is nothing more dark than the heart of the natural man. For Father, we are all in union with Adam by nature. We are all corrupted by his sin, the original sin. And by it, we add to it all of our own individual sins. Father, we'd ask that the darkness of sin would not conquer the light of your gospel, the light of the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we long that his name might be glorified above all other names. So, Father, we'd ask that you would do this first in our hearts and then through among the nations. May your name be glorified And may Christ be proclaimed as the one who was dead, but is now alive. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So hear now the word of God. Mark chapter 15, verse 42 through chapter 16, verse 8. And when evening had come... And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him, in, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before them to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. May it write its truth upon our heart. So this is something that uh, would be easy to kind of skip over, but I don't think it would be healthy to do so because I think this is, if you are reading along with me, depending on what version of the Bible you're reading with me through, uh, you might have noticed something that would might cause your antenna to go up a bit. There, at the bottom of chapter 16, if you're in the ESV, and if you're in the NIV, I think it's a footnote, if I'm not mistaken. You'll see these little brackets that will say, some of the earliest manuscripts do not contain Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. And let me say that that is true. The earliest manuscripts, so by the way, if you're not aware of this, the Bible did not just fall out of the sky one day. It was written by human authors as they were carried along by the Spirit. They wrote these mostly letters or books. They sent them to different congregations. They received them as being the words of God. And they did what anybody who loved the word of God would have done they started making copies. And they made copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. copies. And then over time, these copies are, they are passed down from different churches and different places, and they are disseminated among all the different churches. Well, sometimes these manuscripts do not agree with one another. Now, we hear that as Christians who believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, that this is the Word of God, and we can kind of start to panic when we see that there's this 11 verses that are not found in the earliest manuscripts. And we can begin to think, well, is it inerrant? Is this inspired? Do we actually know what Mark originally said? And the answer is, yes, we do know what Mark originally said. In fact, if you compare the New Testament manuscript tradition to with any work of antiquity, it pales in comparison. We have way more manuscript attestation for the New Testament than any other book of antiquity, and it doesn't even come close. Second place is far and far and far away. And also, too, that little bracket, oddly enough, even though it might cause you to panic a little bit, is actually a testimony that we know what Mark originally wrote, that we know what the Word of God was said by the original authors. How, how, how does it testify to that? Because if we didn't know what the original author said, that little mark wouldn't be in there. We wouldn't know what they didn't say either. But it is there because we can look at that and say, Mark did not write that. But now the question is, Well, why is it there? How did it get there in the first place? Well, I think it's very clear if you just kind of read through that text. Whoever added that was not trying to destroy the word of God. It was not trying to add a new testimony to it. In fact, if your Bible has cross-references in it, which, by the way, if it doesn't have cross-references in it, please get a Bible that does. Those can be very helpful for your own personal study. You'll notice that everything that is said there is referenced in either one of the other Gospels or in the book of Acts. Let's give you a quick rundown and example of this. Uh, he mentions the disciples there on the road to Emmaus that are found in Luke chapter 24. You also have the Great Commission that you found in Matthew chapter uh, 28. You also see parts of the resurrection that are taken from the other Gospels and the Gospel of John as well. In verses 17 through 18, you see things that take place in the book of Acts. Uh, it's a story that's going on. So, So why is it somebody putting that in there? Well, I think if you look at the text and just read through the Gospel of Mark and then stop in chapter 16, verse eight, you'll understand that he ends the story in kind of a strange way, doesn't he? And so, by the way, you're very blessed to have the New Testament all in your Bible, all in one, nice, easy to carry your own place. If you were in the first century, a complete testament of, a complete New Testament, would have cost you a literal fortune, and also too, it probably would have weighed about 150 pounds. It would it would have been it would have been huge, very expensive. Most individuals could not afford even a single book from the New Testament. It was usually just churches, and they had to. They, they, and, and and like I said, you would have probably until about the third or fourth century, you probably wouldn't have found very many churches at all that had every book of the New Testament. They would have only had what they had access to. And so probably what is happening here is there's some congregation out there who their only access to the life story of Jesus from the Gospels was the, was the Gospel of Mark. And they've been left there and at, the end, at the end of chapter 16, verse 8, just kind of scratching their head and wondering, well, do they ever see Jesus? What happens? What, well, if they do see Jesus, what happens after that? Probably what happens, some Bible-believing Christian who had read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts, comes around to this church, sees that they have the gospel of Mark, and says, let me just give you a footnote here. And in fact, the earliest manuscript that we have that actually contains that little note, it has the same little brackets around it that says, this is not original. Now, was just some Christian who loved the word of God, who came and said, I'm not adding to the word of God. But I want, I, want, I, want to, I want to fill you in on the rest of the story. I want to fill you in what goes on in the other Gospels. I want to fill you in what goes on in the book of Acts. Because I think, it's, I think it's important. And so I think a little phrase that I've come up with to kind of help explain this. The long ending of Mark, it is biblical, but it is not the Bible. If I was preaching through the Gospel of Luke, I would love to tell you about the road to Emmaus. I would love to tell you about the ascension of Christ into heaven. If I was in the book of Acts, I would love to tell you about, about Pentecost and the tongues of fire descending on the people. But I'm not in Luke. I'm not in Acts. I'm in Mark. And Mark did not write verses 9 through 11. He stopped at verse 8. But the question is, why did he start, stop in verse 8? That's a very strange thing. I mean, the story ends with the angel appearing to the Marys, saying he is risen, and then they just run away, afraid and silent, saying nothing to anybody. Why does he end the book that way? Well, the reason he ends the book this way, if you've read through the Gospel of Mark, you should be kind of prepared for it. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, Mark has been asking the reader a series of questions, and they all revolve around this. Who is Jesus, and how do you respond? Who is Jesus, and how do you respond? And that is what he is asking us with this strange ending. Who do you say that Jesus is, and what does that mean for you? Before we get to that strange ending, I want to just kind of focus real quick on the strangeness of Easter itself. It's a strange thing that we're doing today. Have you ever thought about this? Was, I was um, watching a video. There's a um, he's a philosopher of science, a guy by the name of Stephen Meyer. Um, he got his PhD uh, from uh, the University of Cambridge, you know, pretty pretty big to do university. And as he was a PhD student there, he was uh, invited uh, to lunch with. His professor and some of the other students and it was kind of a get to know you thing and so the professor sat them all down they had their drinks they had their food and he says we're just gonna go around the table just tell me your name and something interesting about yourself don't tell me something boring about where you come from we all come from somewhere I don't care about that just tell me something interesting about yourself and they're going around the table and it gets to the guy right before Stephen Meyer and his response was well I'm so-and-so and I'm an atheist and the professor just laughed he goes huh. Man, you're, in, you're at Cambridge. We're all atheists. There's nothing interesting about that. That's very normal. So don't, don't, get that out of here. Get that out of here. Uh, next guy, wh- what about you? What's interesting about you? And Stephen Meyer said, I'm Stephen Meyer, and I believe that 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And the professor gets up laughing with a smile on his face. He says, now that is Interesting. That is interesting. I think you're out of your mind, but that is interesting. And it's interesting because it is strange. People don't just get up and walk out of tombs. Like all those tombs out there, they're still filled. They're not not open graves. People do not rise from the dead. And there's some people who come to the Gospel of Mark and they'll say, well, Mark actually doesn't have a resurrection account because you don't see Jesus. Does it not have a resurrection account? Let me remind you of what the angel says. He says, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. The tomb is empty. That is the resurrection. There is a resurrection account here. And not only does he, he didn't just say, oh, well, he's resurrected. That's the end of the story. Mark verifies that he has risen from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a verifiable historical fact. And how do you verify history? Through testimony, through eyewitnesses. And something that you'll notice through all of the Gospels, all the Gospels, is that they're not shy to name names. See, if you're going to lie, if you're going to make up a story, you're not going to get very specific, are you? That's a good way to get in trouble. But Mark, Luke, Matthew, and John get very, very specific. I mean, just look at some of these people that are, named, that are named throughout the Gospel of Mark. Mark, by the way, was written probably about 20 or 25 years after, these, after, the, after the resurrection. These people are still alive when he writes this. One person that he mentions is a guy by the name of Rufus. Rufus is also mentioned in Paul's letter to the Romans. By the way, Mark was probably written to the Roman church. He's saying, if you don't believe me, you know Rufus. Rufus saw this stuff himself. Go to him and ask him yourself, and he will verify what I have told you. He mentions historical figures like Pontius Pilate, also Joseph of Merrimathea. I mean, notice this. He doesn't just tell you Joseph's name. He tells you where he lives. Oh, by the way, if you're passing through Arimathea, Arimathea, there's a guy there by the name of Joseph. He was a member of the council. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a highly respected individual. Go find him. Ask him for yourself. Also, John adds that Nicodemus was there with him. You have the Marys, Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James, these would have been leading women in the church at the time, very prominent public figures. If you don't believe Mark, Go find these people and talk to them. People who are lying and making up stuff don't tell you to go find people to verify what they say. They want to keep it to themselves. They want to be very general. Which, by the way, I feel like I have to say this every Easter, you turn on the History Channel, and there's all these shows about these other lost Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas, or the Gospel of Judas, or the Gospel of Mary, or the Gospel of Peter. If you go through and read those Gospels, you'll notice one thing. They don't mention names. They don't mention places either. You know why? Because they didn't know any names. They didn't know any places. The Gospels in your Bible, they, they name names. And they name places. Mark is not afraid to tell you who these people are. But there are still those who doubt the claims of the resurrection. Probably the most famous one who, doubts the, who, who, who writes books about doubt in the resurrection was the Scottish skeptic, the Scottish skeptic by the name of David Hume. And his argument against the resurrection was very simple. Miracles don't happen. People don't rise from the dead. Therefore, Jesus did not rise from the dead. My response? Duh. Of course people don't rise from the dead. Of course miracles don't happen every day. That's why they're miracles. We shouldn't expect people to be rising from the dead left and right. And and this idea that all these gospel witnesses, these are just ignorant goat herders who didn't know this kind of stuff, if they thought that miracles were just kind of normal things, that people just rose to the dead, why are they amazed? I mean, even look at the disciples themselves. When John and Peter get to the tomb, they, they go to the tomb. Why? Because they can't believe that it actually happened. Thomas, in the Gospel of John, says, Unless I can put my fingers in his wrist, and his side, and in his feet, I cannot believe, because that is too remarkable. That does not happen. Way to go, David Hume. You figured it out. Miracles don't happen every day. That's why they are miraculous. This is why they're like um, uh, the greatest skeptic of all. So we talk about like David Hume's not the first skeptic. There's a whole school of Greek philosophy that was called skepticism. But you know who the greatest skeptic was at the time of the resurrection? Paul. The Apostle Paul. He wasn't just a skeptic, he was a persecutor of Christ he was a persecutor of the church but when he was on the road to Damascus he saw something that didn't just change his mind it changed his heart it changed everything about him and he went from persecuting and murdering the church to taking a trip to Rome and receiving the privilege of becoming a martyr for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ that is what happens to skeptics when they come into contact with the resurrected Lord. David Hume is not as special as David Hume thought he was. There are those, and this is probably the majority of skeptics today, who believe that the tomb was empty. In fact, the earliest uh, Jewish apologists from the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd century, almost none of them deny that the tomb was empty. But they still deny the resurrection. Well, where did the body go? Their answer was pretty simple. Someone stole it. Someone must have come in and stole the body. In fact, that's what the Marys believed when they first got there. Someone stole the body. Well, who? Did the Jews steal the body? What good would that have done them? To steal the body and spark this, this rumor that he rose from the dead. They wouldn't do the Jews who crucified him any good. What about the Romans? What would they have to gain? There's a guy going around here claiming that he is the king of kings. And the Lord of lords, that he is Lord, not Caesar, but that he is Lord. What good would it do them to steal his body and to create this rumor that he has risen from the dead? None. What about the disciples? Maybe they would have done it. You mean the weak, cowering, scared little mice of men who even doubted the resurrection themselves until they witnessed Christ themselves? These people who would, you would say, would make up a lie, and then all, every one of them, except for John, go and die brutal, brutal, brutal deaths for the sake of their lie. It doesn't make sense. Why would they do that? Why would they make a lie and then die? And see, so well, maybe, maybe they got rich off of it. The apostles got rich, they were dirt poor. They got, they got nothing out of this except for pain and suffering in this life. What they got out of it was the hope of the next life, the hope of the resurrection that was confirmed to them in the gospel and what they witnessed with their own eyes and were willing to die for. None of these explanations hold any water, which leads us, which leads us to one and only one conclusion, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead that that tomb was empty because he got up and walked out of it and appeared to hundreds of people who witnessed it and carried that witness to the nations and died for the sake of that witness. Paul claimed that it was foolishness to believe in the resurrection, but that it was true. And his love for this truth is what led him to travel to the, travel throughout the Roman Empire all the way to Rome itself where he would be given the honor of dying a martyr's death for the sake of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Paul would not have done this if he was not convinced of its truthfulness. But nor would he have done this if he, was not, if he did not believe that it was necessary for the world to hear about it. He didn't just die because of what he saw. He died because he took it as far as he could, because he thought it was important enough that he would die so that other people could hear this truth as well. Well, why do the world need to hear it? Why does the resurrection of Christ matter? For some so-called Christians, it doesn't matter. The resurrection doesn't matter at all. I remember I had a conversation some years ago with a, a pastor from another denomination. Um, we were talking about some of the issues that we were having in the PCA. And as we're talking about it, he, we kind of get to the end of it. And he goes, man, I'd give anything. That's the only issues that we had. He's like, do you know that I am in the minority because I believe Jesus actually rose from the dead? That that's more than just a myth. That I believe that it actually happened, that puts me at odds. That puts me at odds with most of the clergy in my denomination. This is not a secondary issue. This isn't a debate about the timing of Christ's return. This is a primary thing. Paul hinges all of salvation on not just the idea of a resurrection, but a historical, the historical fact of the resurrection. If Christ has not risen from the dead, then we are most of all to be pitied. We are still lost. We are still dead in our sins and dead in our trespasses. We are still under the unmitigated wrath of a holy God who hates sin and must punish it. That is what is at stake. When we ask the question to ourselves, do I believe that Christ rose from the dead? Our answer to that question has an eternal weightiness to it. Be careful how you answer that question. It is a brutally important question. Now, I do not have time to go through every single reason why the resurrection matters. We'd be here for days. But I do want to bring three to your attention this morning. Three reasons why the resurrection matters. First of all, it matters because of your battle against sin. Let me read to you from Romans chapter Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter six, excuse me, beginning in verse one. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. First of all, he's not talking about the future resurrection of the dead. He is speaking here of the radical nature of the Christian's union with Christ. Paul speaks about this a lot in his other, in his other books and, and the book of Romans. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were achieved by works of the law, then Christ has died for no purpose. When the Christian is asked, the, the, the Christian is in a unique situation where we, we can't just ask, well, do you know when you're going to die? We can ask a Christian, when did you die? Well, I'm standing right here. What do you mean, when did I die? You died 2,000 years ago on a hill called Calvary, where Christ was, there you were. We can also ask the question to the Christian, when will you rise from the dead? Well, I don't know. But I've already been risen from the dead. Why? Because when Christ came out of the tomb, I did as well. I came out of the tomb with him. That is what Paul is speaking about here. I despise sin. Not just out there, but the sin that is very close to me. I hurt the people. I say things that hurt people. I have seen sin hurt those around me, families, marriages, friendships, businesses. I've seen it cause society to to crumble down around us. I, I was a teacher for for six years. I've I've seen it tear our youth and tear our children apart. I've seen it cause confusion of identity and purpose i've seen it calls them to to run to to drugs to alcohol things that that numb the pain and this a a tragic irony of modern psychology is this is that oh you have a problem let me give you a pill that will make you forget about the problem that doesn't cure the problem it puts a band-aid over the problem The problem isn't a feeling. The problem is the sin that gives rise to the feeling. And that is sin. That That is the displeasure and the wrath of God. I despise sin. But I see it crouching always, always, always in my life and in those around me. What hope do I have that me and you will be able to take our hands wrap them around the throats of our sin nature and choke the life out of it. Romans 6. Romans 6. Notice here, he doesn't say, you know what, try harder to put sin to death. No, no, he says, remember who you are. You are one in union with the resurrected Lord. You have newness of life. That is your, not just a motivation, that is who you are. You are in union with Christ. Your sin has died, and now you have newness of life, and you will kill your sin. This isn't an if, it's a state of being. This is who you are. Victory is not hanging in the balance. You are fighting from a place of victory because Christ has risen from the dead. Secondly, the resurrection matters because you suffer. the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Notice once again, the union language. I suffer with Christ. I thought Christ is at the right hand of the father in glory. What do you mean suffer with Christ? Where you are. Christ is also. You never, ever, ever suffer alone. Christ is there suffering with you. But what's the hope in suffering? See, the world, they grieve as those who are without hope. But the Christian has this hope. That just as Christ Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, he will not suffer us to wait in the tomb forever and ever and ever. I mentioned a while ago, right now, Every one of those tombs are filled. That will not be forever true. One day, every tomb will be open. And every grave will give forth their fruit. Will give forth the life. We will be called up into heaven. We will come with Jesus victorious. And we will see him put the final enemy, death, to death under our feet. Death must die. And it died in Christ. How do we know he killed it? He was risen from the dead. You do not suffer for the sake of suffering. You suffer for the sake of the resurrected Christ who is with you. And then third and lastly, the resurrection matters because you have been a disappointment. That's hard language today. As I mentioned before, in modern psychology, when we're met with disappointment or guilt. We're giving a pill that makes us forget about it. That doesn't make it go away, does it? There's a reason why so many people who get on antidepressant medication, which, by the way, if you're on that, I'm I'm not accusing you or condemning you of anything. Sometimes there can be chemical imbalances that need to be sorted out. But no matter what the reason is, that pill will not cure you. There's a reason why people who get on those drugs stay on those drugs because they come off of it and they say, Well, it's still there. I'm still a gigantic disappointment, I still a gigantic waste of life. You have been a disappointment. That is a truth that you need to hear. You have been a failure. I know you have because I have been too. You have failed as a parent. You have failed as a spouse. You have failed to love your family as you should. You have put yourself before all others. You have failed as sons. You have failed as daughters. You hide things from your parents. You hide things from your friends. You are embarrassed by the things that you, that you do and the things that you think and like and love. You're not what you want to be. You're something far worse. You have all said and done things that you thought were private but were overheard. Your words have harmed others and you cannot take it back. You wish you could. You wish you could get into a time machine and go back and make it all go away. But you cannot do that. And you're left neck deep in your shame and neck deep in your guilt. You are a disappointment. You are a failure. You know who else was a disappointment and who else was a failure? Peter. A royal disappointment. A royal failure. When we come to this text, maybe if you've read through the Gospels anytime recently, you know what was the last thing that we saw Peter doing? He was in the courtyard being questioned by a servant girl. I, I know you, you're with him. The, the guy from Nazareth, the carpenter. You know him. I don't know No, I'm, I'm quite certain. I know your, your accent gives you away. You're a Galilean. You're with him. I don't know the man. The last thing that he says, he says, I do not even know this Jesus of whom you speak. I don't know him. Luke adds an important Little tidbit to his rendering of this. Luke, in his account of Peter's denial adds to this detail. He says that after Peter had denied him the third time, that the Lord turned and looked at Peter. See, Peter thought he was speaking into this silence, kind of behind Christ's back. But when he makes that third denial, he turns, and there is Jesus being led out of the tribunal. Jesus turns and sees him. Jesus heard him. Jesus is about to take upon himself the wrath of God for all the sins of God's people. Christ Jesus, who knew no sin, is about to become the very embodiment of sin, the most sinful thing to ever be on this earth. And in that time of crisis, he passes by Peter, the rock and hears him say, I do not even know that man. Can you imagine what Peter's emotional state is in Mark chapter 16? He's no doubt heard of what Judas has done, hung himself. I can't say for certain, but I feel pretty pretty sure that Peter is probably thinking, that doesn't sound like such a bad idea. Peter is in a very dark place. But look again at what the angel says to the Marys. Do not be alarmed. You see Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified, but he is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before them to Galilee, and there you will see him, just as he told you. Did you catch that? And Peter. Mark doesn't have to say that. The angel doesn't have to say that. He just said disciples. Peter's among the disciples. But he singles out Peter. What the angel here is doing is he is going to Mary, and he is saying, Mary, you're going to go, and you're going to go find the disciples, and you're going to tell them that this tomb is empty and that Jesus is not here. But when you find Peter, I want you to grab him by his collar. I want you to pull him in as close to you as you possibly can. And I want you to make sure that he's looking you right in the eye. And you say, Peter, he is not here. The tomb is empty. If he was to find the Lord and Savior who gave his life for him, who he denied, don't come back to the tomb. Go to Galilee. There he will find them. If there's anyone in the world in Mark chapter 16 who needed to hear of the resurrection, it was Peter, the disappointing disciple. But Christ was risen for Peter. Christ was risen for his justification. Christ was risen for his guilt and for his shame. And the same is true for the disappointments in this room. Christ was risen for your sin. Christ was risen for your guilt. Christ was risen for that shame and for your disappointment. When Christ came out of the tomb, your sin and your guilt, they remained there. They died on the cross and they did not receive life. Christ came from the tomb. Your life came from the tomb. Your righteousness came from the tomb. But your guilt and your shame, they stayed there. And whatever pain you feel as a result of that is merely the stench of its rotting corpse. It has no power over you. Take all the pills you want. It will not save you. It will not cure you. That will. Believe. Believe that the tomb is. Is empty. Believe that He died for your justification and that He rose so that you would be certain of that fact, that He has indeed removed all of the sin, all of the shame, and all of the guilt as far from you as the East is from the West. Believe. Believe, and you shall be satisfied. Let me close with this. Back to that strange ending of Mark. The women running away scared. Why does Mark end his gospel in this strange way? Why doesn't Mark show us the body? Mark is writing this book to Christians in Rome. He's writing this somewhere in the 50s AD, maybe the early 60s. Jesus has ascended into heaven. For the Romans, there is no body to see. They don't have the luxury of Thomas. They have this. A testimony, a word. The Marys, where Mark leaves off, that's all they have. They see an empty tomb, but they don't see the body. All they have is the witness of the angels that he is risen, that he is not here. If you want to find him, go look somewhere else. That is the testimony, and that is what you have. I cannot show you the body of Christ. I cannot even show you the empty tomb. I have a testimony. I have eyewitness accounts that say Christ has risen. And now the question is, how have you responded? Who is Jesus? And what call does that place upon your life? I can't answer that question for you. That is between you and God who gave his son life from the dead and who can also give life to your mortal bodies our heavenly father you are a God who is sovereign and rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love the greatest witness to this fact was an empty tomb carved into a rock in a hillside in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. That tomb is empty. Father, I cannot believe for people. But Father, your grace is all sufficient and cannot be conquered. For we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone. We are, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and not through works. For this is not our, of our own doing. It is the gift of God, so that none may boast. Father, I cannot believe, but I can pray for the gift of belief. Father, I pray that by your Spirit, you will quicken every dead heart in this room and that you would give the same life that you gave to Jesus Christ right here and right now for the sake of his name, for the sake of his glory, and the sake of his kingdom, which is without end.